And tonight we're in verses 9 and 10. We want to give a little background, get into it, and uh, just kind of pick it apart. Because each verse brings out some special truths for us to apply. As we get started tonight, a couple of things. Number one, we ask the people remain seated throughout the remainder of the Bible study. Number two, if you are new tonight, and this is your first time, we're not taking any more um, testimonies right now. Sorry. Um, if you're new tonight, this is your first time, we just kind of want to let you know that verse 9 and 10 are unusual verses. And uh, you might think, God, these guys, I've gone to Calvary Chapel, but they picked such weird verses to do sermons on. It's not that we're picking weird verses, just that we happen to land on one tonight. And uh, we don't want to be guilty of just not dealing with it and skipping over it, but we like to cover all of the Word of God. And Sunday nights allows us to do two or three chapters sometimes. And um, Thursday night allows us to get more in-depth. And tonight we happen to fall on one of the most unusual verses in the Scripture, which is uh, Jude verse 9. And we're going to speak a little bit about spiritual warfare in one particular sense. And we're going to learn a lesson from Michael the Archangel. Uh, There are not that many great books on spiritual warfare. Now, I have lots of them in my study. There's a few of them that I would recommend. Many of them I would not. One of the few books that I would recommend, however, unfortunately, is a book that Rebecca in the bookstore will say, why didn't you warn me you were going to uh, tell people about that? Because then I could order some. They're a little bit difficult to get. Um, It is called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. It's a Puritan book. Um, Thomas Brooks... Uh, a long time ago, 1600s, 1700s, uh, and it's from Puritan paperbacks. If you want to hunt that down, you want to get a good book that will nurture your heart and encourage your heart in that area of spiritual warfare, it's by Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. There are other books that I have, and I would say they're really whipped cream. There's really not much substance to them. Uh, But this one has got some real depth meat, and it's very encouraging. And I'd like to... um, really open tonight with a quote from this book and then close with another quote. He says, Beloved, Satan being fallen from light to darkness, from felicity to misery, from heaven to hell, from an angel to a devil, is so full of malice and envy that he will leave no means unattempted whereby he may make all others eternally miserable with himself. He being shut out of heaven, shut up under the chains of darkness till the judgment of the great day, Jude 6, makes use of all his power and skill to bring the sons of men into the same condition and condemnation with himself. Satan loves to sail with the wind and to suit men's temptations to their conditions and inclinations. If they be in prosperity, he will tempt them to deny God. Proverbs 30, verse 9. If they be in adversity, he will tempt them to distrust God. If their knowledge is weak, he will tempt them to have low thoughts of God. If their conscience be tender, he will tempt them to scrupulosity. If their conscience is large, to carnal security. 
If they are bold-spirited, he will tempt them to presumption. If they are timid, to desperation. If flexible, to inconsistency. If stiff, to impenitence. To impenitency. And there's more, but I just wanted to open up with that. And the book basically describes the tactics of the devil and how we should be aware of his devices and how to fight them. Now that's sort of an introduction to verse 9 and 10 because he is writing against false teachers in this book. And one of the areas the false teachers were dabbling in was the spirit world. They were dabbling into areas they knew nothing about. The Gnostics he's talking about would get into areas that were not spoken about in the scripture. They believed in emanations whom they could communicate with and they had a special superior knowledge more than other Christians. And if you wanted to be very spiritual, you join with them because they get these special messages from God and from the emanations of God. Yet, the same group of people, though they boast in the spirit world, had no idea what they were doing, and they defied the authority structure in the spiritual realm. And he uses a wild example. He says, yet Michael the archangel. No, let's not go through that yet. Let's go back to verse 8. That's it. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil, literally blaspheme dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But those, but these, that is these false teachers that he mentioned in the previous verses, speak evil of whatever they do not know and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts or untamed animals, literally. In these things, they corrupt themselves. By way of background, Jude is speaking about false teachers. And he gives several marks of them. And in verse 8, he applies the examples that he uses in a few verses before verse 8. Of people corporately who have fallen away from a position of walking with God. The children of Israel at one point. Satan, who fell with his angels in heaven. And then also Sodom and Gomorrah, who were judged by God. And to apply that, in verse 8, he says, These false teachers, he calls them filthy dreamers, defile the flesh. We spoke about that last week, immorality. They reject the authority structure and speak evil of dignitaries. Now, in verse 9 and 10, he gives a further example, because for some reason, this was a big deal in the early church. How that false teachers would come in, and divorced themselves from any authority whatsoever, did not care about God's church, the leadership of God's church, just sort of, I'm on my own crusade, I hear directly from God, I'm accountable to no one, I have this special superior walk with God and special knowledge that no one else can attain to. And to give an example of keeping the authority structure in the spiritual realm, Jude gives a bizarre example of Michael disputing with the devil over the body of Moses. It is unusual, number one, because of the sort of conflict it is. When was the last time you heard about people arguing about a corpse? Especially 
two angelic beings arguing about the corpse of a person who walked upon the earth, but is now God is finished with them. Who cares about a body? I mean, a corpse is a corpse, especially those of us who are Christians. And we know that we are valuable to God, but once we leave this body, the flesh really is of no value. The spirit is eternally in God's presence forever. Who cares about a corpse? What a strange example. What a strange scripture. Secondly, this text is unusual because this is the only place this is spoken of. Now, there are other places that Moses is spoken of, obviously. His death is spoken of in one place, Deuteronomy 34, which we're going to look at briefly. But this is the only place where this dispute is ever mentioned in the Scripture, and it's used as an example about false teachers. Though it is unusual, though it is the only place spoken of, there are things that we need to look at and apply to our own hearts tonight. First being the most obvious, and we've touched on this in the past, that is there is a conflict going on in the spiritual realm. There is a conflict going on in the spiritual realm that affects us in the earthly realm. If you're a Christian, that's not new news to you. You've known that. In fact, you have witnessed perhaps more opposition, certainly more opposition, from your arch enemy, the devil, now that you love Jesus Christ, once you commit your life to him, you find that you have an enemy who fights against your soul. Moreover, every time you make strides of commitment to Jesus Christ, you find the opposition gets greater, not less. And so you know about this warfare. The scripture says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, the powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, against the spiritual host of wickedness in the heavenly places. Spiritual conflict, demonic conflict, is a reality. However, there has been, in my opinion, a sort of bandwagon approach to spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is a very tantalizing subject these days. It's very popular. If you want to write a book that will sell, write a book about the devil or demons or put on a spiritual warfare seminar. Now, I'm not saying that they're not needed. We need to be aware of the tactics of the devil and we need to know the scriptures to stand fast. But some of the truth of the Bible has been distorted by people's desire to get into areas they don't really know about. You know, the Bible, I believe, gives us all that we need to know about life and godliness. About God, about His power, about demons, about how to fight them. There have been books like This Present Darkness by Frank Peretti and other books that he's written, which, hey, are good books. But keep something in mind, they're novels. They are based upon an idea found in the scripture, but even he himself admits he is not a theologian, he is not a pastor, he's not a Bible teacher, he's a writer. And he wrote a great book that has some truths, but to follow a book like This Present Darkness, to take your truth to apply to your life about spiritual warfare is a big mistake, a grave mistake. I was 
years ago, invited to India. I'm going back there again in November, but I was invited, and I went with a group of guys from Texas. I won't mention where, because I don't really want to offend anyone. Not not that the city would matter or that the church would matter, but I went with this group. who were They were on a crusade. The crusade was to cast demon spirits out of Christian leaders. What better place than India? And I spoke with the guy who was the ringleader. He was very popular at the time, and... um, We locked horns on some of these issues. I wouldn't stand by and let him preach this garbage. I said, it's wrong, it's in error. And he said, let me tell you something, young man. That time I was. (laughs) He said, I have cast demons out of some of America's greatest Christian leaders. I thought, I don't think so. And he proceeded to stand in the group in the meeting that we had and look over these precious pastors, all of about 1,500 of them, who knew what demon possession was, who knew the powers of darkness firsthand being entrenched in a country of Hinduism, who lived with it day in and day out. And he had the audacity to tell these people, some who walked for some of them weeks to get to this conference, who gave their blood, sweat, and tears to preach the gospel, the kind of commitment you don't see here. And he stood up and he says, I see demons right now attached to all of you pastors. And I'm going to cast them out. Now, he did not get this idea from the scripture. In fact, he never really used his Bible. And the texts that he used were so out of context, a first-year Bible college student could have seen through it. In fact, most of the Indian pastors, if not all of them, did see through it. They came afterwards and they said, this is false doctrine. I read my Bible, and the Bible says Christians cannot be demon-possessed. Moreover, the men of God here are not being encouraged. They're being discouraged by this joker who says we're all filled with demons. And so what they decided to do is put an interpreter who was a theologian from India to correctly interpret truth. Every time he said something wrong, the interpreter would give the correct biblical truth instead of what this guy was saying. Now, this guy didn't know it because he was speaking in Malayalam and Hindi. And it was fabulous because I was leaning over and I was saying, well, what did he say as he was interpreting? And one time this man stood up and he said, I see demons over you right now. This room is filled with demons. And this guy interpreted it by saying, the angels of God are surrounding you tonight and you're strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And everybody was, you know, clapping, all right. And the guy who was given the sermon thought, they clapped at that? It was great. But that kind of stuff is very popular these days. And what is very discouraging is that many people in Christian circles will dare to do what Jude tells us Michael would never do. Michael, the archangel of God, one of the chief princes of God, as we read in verse 9, in contending or having an argument with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but he said, the Lord rebuke you. One thing we must realize as a premise is that we already have victory. You're not fighting for victory. You're fighting from victory. 
You already have all of the armor of God at your disposal. All you got to do is wear it and use it. It's not like the war is hung in the balances and we're waiting with bated breath to see who will win. Scripture doesn't say that at all. It says in Colossians chapter 2, having, past tense, disarmed the powers, the authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Peter shares with us some of these insights when he says, speaking of Christ, who has gone into heaven, is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers being in submission to him. Now, there is a battle. But we're told to be strong how? In what? Be strong in the Lord. For some reason, at spiritual warfare seminars, that's not touched on much. All sorts of incantations and new methods are taught on how you should talk to the devil and handle him yourself when the scripture says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, nor are the methods that we use carnal. But we're to be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And He's disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them at the cross. Is Satan after us? Yep. You betcha. You betcha. The Bible tells us be self-controlled and alert or on the watch. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. All right. He's after us. We don't have to look for him. We don't have to go to India to find him. We don't have to find if people have certain demons. He's looking for you. How do you handle them? Well, right after that, Peter says, resist the devil. And James amplifies that and says, resist the devil or stand immovable and he will flee from you. And the word resist means to make firm, to fix, to establish or to cause a person or a thing to keep its place, not to run away or not even to run toward, but to stand and to be kept intact. I heard about a mental hospital who years ago devised an unusual test to see if the patients inside the mental institution were ready to go back out into the world. And what they did is they invited the prospective patient to be released into a special room and they had the water running in a faucet, overflowing the sink onto the floor, and they gave him a mop and a bucket to mop it up. Their reasoning was, if the person goes to the faucet and first turns off the faucet and then mops up the floor, he's ready for the outside world. But many of the patients they discovered just started mopping and they kept at it and they kept at it and they kept at it because more water kept coming. There's a lot of people that are out there trying to find messes and mop them up instead of going to the source and shutting it off. Moreover, finding that the Lord has already done so. That we're strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 12? Since Jude speaks about Michael contending with the devil, I thought we should turn to a scripture where John in the book of Revelation views the cosmic warfare of the ages. And of course, Michael and the devil are also mentioned. 
It says in verse 1, Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, the head of a, uh, on her head a garland of twelve stars, she being with child cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns, seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days or three and a half years. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was there a place found for them in heaven any longer. And so the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world, he was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now salvation, strength, and the kingdom of our God And the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accuses them before our God day and night has been cast down. In verse 4, well, first of all, we back up. We find that there's a woman. And we know from our studies in Revelation, without having to trace back tonight, if you are wondering about the interpretation of this, you might want to check on some of the other series that we've done. We've covered it in depth. The woman is none other than the nation of Israel. It can be no other. It cannot be Mary. It has to be Israel. The child, of course, is Christ, spoken about in the text and spoken about others as one who would rule with a rod of iron. Satan draws a third of the stars or the beings of heaven in a rebellion. Other scriptures to look is Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, on your own, not tonight. A third of the angels, it seems, fell with Satan in the great rebellion. Of those third, some of them have been kept and reserved in darkness with everlasting chains. Remember Jude 6, we covered that. So there's less than a third who are active and on the move today. Michael, on the other hand, commands, it seems, under God's jurisdiction, two-thirds of those who did not fall. Okay, a third of them fell. Granted, two-thirds of them did not. And there's more on the good side than on the bad side. Okay, that's first of all. They're in a minority. We're in a majority. Are there demons? Yes. Are they powerful? Yes. Are they out to get you? Certainly. But the Bible says that God sends His angels as ministering spirits to minister to you who are heirs of salvation. There's more good ones than bad ones. Moreover, in Revelation chapter 5, before the throne of God, it says... There are ten thousands times ten thousands of angels, which is a Greek word to mean it's the highest number possible, probably numbering in the billions of angels worshiping before God's throne. So we don't know how many angels fell in number. We don't know how many are left, but we know that there's more good ones than there are bad ones. Michael is the leader. He's mentioned here in the book of Revelation. He's mentioned in Jude, and he's mentioned one other place. Who knows where? Daniel. Daniel chapter 10 and Daniel chapter 12. Jude calls him an archangel or the chief 
angel. He's the boss, the big wig. The guy in charge of other angels, of course, under God's government. Now the Jews traditionally believed that there were four great beings, Michael being one of them, Four, because they believed there were four sides to the throne of God, and so there were four archangels. However, in the scripture, archangel or chief angel or chief prince, all terms applied to Michael, are used in the singular and imply that there's only one. And that the counterpart to the devil would be none other than Michael. We see them fighting together, contending over the body of Moses, fighting in Revelation chapter 12, and again also in Daniel chapter 10, where Michael is very prevalent. Now, the name Michael means who is like God. And his name means, it's a testimony. There is no one like our Lord. He's distinct, he's separate, he's powerful. Michael's name is in direct contrast to the devil who wanted to be like God. Remember he said, I will be like the Most High, Isaiah 14. And what was the first lie that he tried to perpetrate to Eve? He said, go ahead, eat of this. It's good. God knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God. As wise as God. God doesn't want you to be like him, but if you do, you will be like him. So Satan's desire has been to perpetrate the idea that he is like God, like the Most High, and to tell other people that they have the same kind of capability to be gods themselves. Michael, on the other hand, always gave the glory to God. And his name means who is like God. He's first mentioned in Daniel chapter 10. Here's the story. Daniel has been praying for three weeks. No answer. Nothing happens. But he keeps praying. Finally, an angel is dispatched to tell Daniel the answer to the prayer and why there was a delay. He said that he was delayed because the prince of the kingdom of Persia restrained him, obviously an evil being. Then the scripture says, Then Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. You read a couple chapters later in Daniel chapter 12, Michael is mentioned again. This time he's standing up for the nation of Israel in the end times prophetically. The scripture says, At that time Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, There shall be a time of great trouble, such as never was since there was a nation. Now, in this conflict, there are several targets. Who are they? In Revelation 12, in the cosmic conflict of the ages, who's the number one target, first of all? Jesus Christ. For we read... In verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven, threw them to the earth. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Throughout the scripture, you read about this conflict. How the devil always tried to destroy the promise of God, the royal seed of the children of Israel, the seed of David and so forth, as an attempt to exterminate the Messiah. Because way back in the beginning, Genesis 3, God promised that one day the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the devil, the serpent. Ever since that promise, Satan has been trying to figure out where the promises are coming, who the royal line is, who to kill. And so we read in the New Testament, 
that at the time Jesus was born, Herod the Great, finding out that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, had every male child two years and under slaughtered as an attempt, I believe, by Satan to exterminate the Messiah. That failed. Jesus was born. He grew in stature and fear of the Lord. And so we read about the temptation where the devil confronts him personally in the wilderness. That doesn't work. Jesus rebukes him face to face. Then there was the cross. And at the cross, I am convinced, as soon as Jesus bowed his head and died, he thought, got him. Three days later, he had a surprise, didn't he? He didn't read this fine print in the Old Testament where the resurrection was predicted. Jesus rose from the dead, vanquishing the powers of Satan in the life of a believer completely at that point. So Jesus is the number one target. Because of that, he has other targets. The nation of Israel, angelic beings, and you. All because those other targets are attached to Jesus Christ. Jesus loves the nation of Israel, still has a plan for Israel in the future. And so you read about things like the Holocaust and anti-Semitism. It's more than just prejudice. It's demonically inspired. He touches angelic beings. Satan has this battle we read about against the good angels because the good angels help you out. And they dispatch are dispatched by God to do his will. Now, look down in verse 10. We are also in this conflict. Uh, earthlings are human beings. I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, salvation, strength, and the kingdom of God, the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. Question, how do these people wage war? Do they do the same way as Michael the archangel? Uh, Do they have a personal conflict like the Messiah? Let's read on. They overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives until death. They did not overcome the devil by saying, Devil, I bind you. I command you. Never once do you read about Christians in overcoming the devil, addressing him as if they have some arbitrary authority over him with some whimsical command or incantation to drive him out. Never once. Yet, even though Michael dared not do that, but said, the Lord rebuke you, Christians do it all the time, unfortunately. All right, back to Jude. I wanted you to give you that background of Michael and the devil. A view of warfare. But Jude tells us about another conflict not spoken of anywhere. Where there's this body of Moses. After Moses died, there was somehow an argument, a dispute. And the people involved were Michael, the chief angel of God, and the chief demon, Satan. And they argued about the body of Moses. Now, how the discussion went, I don't know, and I don't presume to tell you. But the Targum of Jonathan, an old Jewish commentary on the Scripture, said that the body of Moses, when God buried it, and the Bible says God did bury it, was given special custody to Michael, who was to oversee the burial. Now, that's not in the Scripture. That's just one of their beliefs. That's one of their commentaries. 
The only place this is referred to, the burial of Moses, is Deuteronomy 34. Let me just read it to you. And Moses, the servant of the Lord, died in Moab, as the Lord had said. He buried him in Moab in the valley opposite Beth Peor. But to this day, no one knows where his grave is. Again, for some reason, God kept his cemetery plot a mystery. No one can visit and say, this is the tomb of Moses. And I think for a very good reason. I think people would venerate it, would worship it. Every place in Israel where there is a known tomb of some ancient patriarch, they set up a shrine, they worship it, they venerate it, they'd want a relic of his bone, they'd want to sell it for money. And people would start worshiping the creature rather than the creator, which is blessed forevermore. But God, for some reason, kept it secret. Now, there was an argument. We don't know why. We can only guess. And for the sake of doing so, because some of you perhaps have asked questions reading that verse, saying, what on earth is going on? I'll give you a few suggestions from some of the reading I've done. Number one, it could be that Satan wanted the body of Moses simply to desecrate it because he was God's chosen vessel. He was used by God. He was a man of miracles. He helped in leading the children of Israel out of bondage. So to desecrate a servant of God, albeit dead, he couldn't touch him while he was alive, but now that he can't dead, let me have his body. I want to desecrate it. Secondly, it could be that Satan wanted the body of Moses to cause the children of Israel to fall into idolatry. This is what some scholars believe. That... uh, He would take and use the tomb again as a point of veneration because the Jews so esteemed Moses as a prophet. In fact, Josephus, the Jewish historian, said about Moses, he exceeded all men that were ever in understanding. He was a prophet as was never known before and to such a degree that whatever he pronounced, you would think that you heard the voice of God himself. And so perhaps to cause the children of Israel to fall into idolatry, he would use the body of Moses that they might venerate it. Now, do you think the children of Israel would ever do that? Of course they would. Didn't they do it to the brass serpent that Moses held up in the wilderness? Years later, they bowed to it. They worshipped it. And God cursed them for it. Number three is an interesting explanation. It could be that as prophecy was being revealed, that somehow Satan found out about the plan that God had Again, this is a wild explanation to use the body of Moses in the future. We read about a couple people in the Old Testament, in the Bible, uh, one of them who never died. His name was Elijah. He was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Moses was buried by God. He's the only one in the scripture we ever read where God personally did his funeral. Buried him. No one knew where it was. There was an argument about the body of Moses between Satan and Michael, perhaps because God had a future use for the body of Moses. You say, what future use? Here's conjecture. On the Mount of Transfiguration, who appeared with Jesus? Moses and Elijah. What were they speaking about? The future kingdom that was coming. Jesus was in dazzling white, and they were having some kind of conversation about the kingdom. Moses and Elijah. Why Moses and Elijah? Well, Moses represented to the Jews the law. Elijah always represented the greatest prophet. It was the law and the prophets bearing testimony that the Messiah had come. But also speaking of the future kingdom. Turn to Revelation 11 sometime and you read there are two witnesses. There's all sorts of wild guesses who in the tribulation will be the two witnesses we don't know. The best explanation are Moses and Elijah who appear at other times. 
like the Mount of Transfiguration. One didn't die. One was kept, his body kept by Michael in a contention against Satan. The signs and wonders, by the way, in Revelation 11 sound exactly like Moses and Elijah at work. The turning of the water into blood, the plagues that come upon the tribulation period at the hand of one of the prophets, and then Elijah, and uh, whose signs also sound very much like Elijah in the Old Testament. That's a possibility. Whatever the reason, God dispatched Michael, his number one guy, to fight it out. But verses 9 and 10 of Jude should teach us a lesson. They give to us a spiritual lesson on handling the devil and his attacks against us. Simply put, if Satan, in coming against Michael, let me rephrase that, if Michael, in this dispute, would not presume to command, to take authority in his own strength, but was very careful how he handled the authority structure, even though it was a demonic one, how much more should we as Christians not follow the example of the apostates who are denounced in verses 9 and 10 of Jude? Speaking about things they really don't know. Now, I'm not saying the people who talk to the devil are all apostates. This just happened to be one of the marks of those in the early church. But it is interesting that a lot of people still do it today. Folks, it's dangerous for any Christian to directly talk to the devil. I believe that firmly. I never talk to him. I find that Paul never talked to him. I find that Michael did, but he didn't say, I rebuke you. He said, the Lord rebuke you. There's a parallel, by the way, to this in the Old Testament. I'm going to have you turn again to another scripture. Zechariah, if you would turn there, chapter 3. Right. In Zechariah chapter 3, the prophet gets a vision that the priesthood and the nation will be cleansed and restored to formal usefulness. And the vision goes like this. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. Who's the angel of the Lord? It could be a theophany. It could be the Lord himself, a pre-incarnate form of Christ. That's what most commentators believe. And the Lord said to Satan. Now listen to this. The Lord said to Satan. The Lord rebuke you. Now God, who is all powerful, could have said, out of here. You're dust, you're toast, you're history. But he said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire. In other words, Joshua, though he's struggling in the nation of Israel, though they're being persecuted, I'll retrieve them from the fire and I'll make them useful once again. We don't stand around and rebuke the devil. We ask God to do it. Now, if I could do it, if every time I said, devil, I rebuke you, if I knew he'd go, oh, it's all over. I've just got to stop now. Believe me, I would do it once and for all. I'd say, Satan, I bind you from now until all of eternity is done, period. 
And I know people who have tried to do it. Problem. It's never worked. He's still loose and at it again. And if you think the devil's bound, who's doing his business? Somebody's out there working hard. Okay, let's get personal. What about when you're personally attacked? Did you know that the New Testament has cases, number one, of demon possession? Jesus casts the demon out and he talks directly to the demon. Of course, he's God. Number two, the New Testament records Christians who are under the attack of demonic forces and how they handle them. In fact, the more effective a person is used for God, the more that person knows about spiritual warfare because he's attacked or she's attacked all the more. 2 Corinthians 12. Paul speaks about, it is doubtless, verse 1, profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations in the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter, of such a one I will boast. In other words, I'm the guy who had these visions. Now, the incident most believe is that when Paul was stoned outside of the city in the New Testament, and they supposed that he was dead, some believe that at that point he received his thorn in the flesh, which we're about to read about, which could be some kind of physical disorder. And it was at that time almost dead, that he was caught up and saw the vision of the third heaven. We don't know. That's just, again, conjecture. Such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, unless I should be exalted above measure. By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Now, to, by his own admission, he said, I was hassled. And the hassle, this thorn in the flesh, was a messenger of Satan. Okay. Now, what would you do? You'd pray, wouldn't you? Concerning these things, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasures in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What was his thorn in the flesh? Perhaps malaria. Perhaps an eye disease. Perhaps migraine headaches. It was a thorn in the flesh that is in his body. The Greek word is a stake, a nagging huge stake. Not just a little, ooh, got a thorn. It's a stake that's driven into the flesh. That's the Greek word that is used. But what is interesting is this. On one hand, it is Satan's effort to thwart the work of God. A messenger of Satan. On the other hand, God uses it. Now, some of you, it doesn't fit your theology, but it should. On the other hand, God uses it to further his work by humbling Paul 
so that he wouldn't get puffed up and exalted because of these great revelations that he's had. It'd be easy to walk around and say, well, you know, I've had a few revelations myself. I was caught up into heaven. I mean, I just didn't pray and feel an ooey-gooey feeling. I actually communicated with God several times. Miracles have been done by these hands. Lest I should be exalted above measure, this thorn in the flesh was given to him, on one hand by Satan, but controlled by God to further the gospel by humbling Paul. What did Paul do? Did he say, okay, I've got a messenger of Satan. I bind you in the name of Jesus. No, he didn't talk to Satan once. He talked to God about it. I pleaded with the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times. He figured three strikes, I'm out. Because the Lord at that time revealed, my grace is sufficient for you. And it dawned on him that the greatest vessels are the weakest. The most successful vessels are the weakest vessels. Because weak vessels rely upon the Lord instead of themselves. Strong vessels rely upon themselves, their education, their prowess. Weak vessels say, God, help. And so he said, you know what? I boast, I brag about my sicknesses, infirmities. My sicknesses. I didn't bind them. I didn't cast them out. I didn't try to command with some incantation the devil because I knew that God was using it to further his gospel by humbling me. So he says, I boast. I take pleasure. Notice the language. In infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. There's one other instance that I'd like to close with. And I'll just read it to you. First Thessalonians chapter 2, Paul says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and time again. But Satan hindered us. I wanted to come, but I couldn't. There was an obstacle I couldn't get over. I was hindered by Satan. He makes no mention of binding it, of loosing it, of commanding it, just... He obviously knew that God could override it if he wanted to. In one hand in the Bible, in the book of Acts, it says that the Lord hindered them. But in a very different instance, it says that Satan hindered him. Now, can we fight? Yes, but not with earthly weapons. We fight with spiritual weapons. Ephesians chapter 6 gives you a whole list. The breastplate of righteousness, the word of God, having your sheet, your sheet, your feet shod, With sheets, no, with the preparation of the gospel of peace. The sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And what do you do? Do you run from Him? No. Do you run toward Him? No. You stand immovable. You resist the devil. What will happen? He will flee from you. He will flee from you. All you have to do is stand immovable, resort to the word of God, the Scripture, Prayer in the Spirit, taking upon yourself the armor of God with spiritual weapons like prayer, the Word of God, the Gospel, faith, and you resist the devil. And he will flee from you. I know that that's very simplistic for some of you because you like the dramatic. You'd like to be able to take some kind of power credit. Say, you know, I rebuke the devil. We had... I could tell story after story. We had people in the office who, you know, some pretended to be possessed. Others, I believed, really were because of the superhuman strength that they possessed. One young guy came in one time and he threw two huge guys on my staff off of him across the room. Not across the entire room, but a good section of it. They were kind of freaked out. They were talking in a loud voice, real loud. And I walked in very simply. I said, hold it down. In the name of Jesus Christ, stop that. And we just prayed over him. He was calm like that. 
I didn't have to go, Now, I command you, in the name of... It's not my authority. It's not my voice. It's not my wisdom. It's not my emotion. It's God's strength and God's power. And it's already there. It's already there. Whoever is born of God, the Bible says, the wicked one touches him not. What a great promise. You don't fight for victory. You fight from victory. And what do you do when you encounter darkness? Talk to God. Let him hassle. Keep a buffer. Satan is not the opposite of God. God rules over all angels, principalities, and powers. The Bible says in Peter, they are all in submission to him. And finally, we close out verse 10 of Jude, which tells us, but these, that is, these Gnostics, who have these visions of angelic emanations and spirit beings, speak evil of what they do not know, and whatever they know naturally like brute beasts or literally unreasonable animals, in these things they corrupt themselves. Now, what Paul did in that verse is crush the whole system of the Gnostics who thought they had superior ability and knowledge and strength from other Christians. We know more, we're in the know, we have the spiritual power because we know a lot more than you average Christians. We believe in these emanations. He just crushed their whole argument by saying, you speak of something you don't even know about. Moreover, you shouldn't speak evil of dignitaries, and Satan is a dignitary, albeit evil. Even Michael the archangel didn't bring a railing accusation against him, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And so he crushed their whole idea. Again, I recommend this book. If you want to find it, it's a great little book. Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. More than spiritual warfare of I bind the devil, it'll tell your heart how to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Um, I have books, as I said, from some of the experts on the symposiums. I have a whole book based upon a symposium and set of seminars done by experts in demonology and spiritual warfare. Some of it is actually entertaining. It's quite funny, actually. It's, I mean, it's funnier than a comedy. Some of the things that are, it's like, where did they get that? That's hilarious. You know, the demon of baldness, the demon of, I mean, it's, it's on and on. It's ridiculous, seriously. The demon of uh, chocolate cake, the demon of nicotine, and uh, how they named them all. And again, no scriptural precedence. Where did they get their information? This is the funny part. They get it through their experiences of casting demons out. And the demons tell them, who they are. And of course, they write them down and sell books. Now, the funny part is what is a child of God doing believing the testimony of demons? Well, it's got to be true. The devil told me. (laughs) Come on. I've read things how that when your demon is cast out of a person because the demons have lodged in him, that person's going to throw up. And so church services will pass out handkerchiefs. Now, this is not a joke. There are church services that will pass out handkerchiefs to you, and you'll have the demon cast out of you, and you'll throw up in the handkerchief, whatever demon that was. And so they have, you know, it's a barf service. (laughs) Don't you think that the devil is loving all of the attention? 
instead of talking about Jesus and His power and His strength and drawing near to Him, you're totally off focus. Thinking about the devil? Handkerchiefs? It amazes me. In his book, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices, one of the precious things he says in his sixth chapter is Satan's devices to keep saints in a sad, doubting, questioning, uncomfortable condition. The several devices that Satan hath to keep souls in a sad, doubting, questioning, and uncomfortable condition. Though he can never rob a believer of his crown, yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned, no means unattempted to rob them of their comfort and peace, to make their life a burden and a hell to them, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning and sighing and complaining, in doubting and questioning, surely, We have no interest in Christ. Our graces are not true. Our hopes are the hopes of hypocrites. He's imagining that Satan would tell us this. Our confidence is our presumption. Our enjoyments are our delusions. Getting us to be robbed of our joy, our confidence, and our strength instead of being strong in the Lord and the power of His might. You're victorious. You are, as a Christian, victorious. All of you, as believers, have the same power. You don't all use the same power. But if Jesus lives in you, you have everything that pertains to life and godliness. Now, I know that some of you think that you're a cut above others. You've attained to a certain spiritual level. But the truth is, the more you think that, the more you prove you're not. Because a true encounter with God is a humility. There's so much I have to learn. And I'm so thankful that one of the things I don't need to worry about is I don't need to chase the devil. I don't need to waste my breath that I could spend talking to God and talk to the devil. There can be true spiritual power and a release of that power through prayer. Are you being hassled like Paul? You pray to the Lord three times. You enjoy that communion with Him. And see what God reveals to you about Himself. My grace is sufficient. When you're weak, you're strong. Would to God that we as Christians would leave tonight saying, God, thank you for that weakness. Bless you for that trial. Thank you for that attack. Because you've allowed it, be it from you or be it a messenger from Satan, you've allowed it to strengthen me, to encourage my heart, and to further your work. So I bless you for it. I know that's contrary to modern teaching in many churches like the faith movement, but it happens to be very scriptural. I will boast in my sicknesses and in my infirmities. Heavenly Father, tonight we thank you for all that you have prescribed and allowed by your sovereign providence. We thank you, Lord, that Nothing escapes your eye. Satan cannot pull a trick on us that you do not allow. We remember the book of Job and the agreement that was struck in the heavenlies prior to the devastation that he experienced. And we also remember the words of Job who said, Shall we accept only good from God and not evil? And he blessed the Lord and cursed him not. 
and said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Father, we thank you for what you've given to us. And even if it's being taken away, you know you're good. And that never changes. And we bless you, Father, for your work in our lives. Thank you, Lord, that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. In Jesus' name, amen.